we're continuing in uh, the book of Genesis as we've been going through the book of Genesis. Today we're in chapter 23, verses 1 to 20. It's the whole chapter. I've entitled the message, The Deed Dance, and you'll understand when we get there. <laughs> All that Abraham had to go through, but... I want to begin uh, this morning with this. Walt Disney made a statement that is the premise behind the animated movie Meet the Robinsons. Have you ever watched a movie, um, Meet the Robinsons, the animated uh, movie? <clears throat> and throughout that movie, you keep hearing the same phrase, keep moving forward, keep moving forward. And it's, it comes from this quote. Um, he said, Around here, however, we don't look backwards for very long. We keep moving forward, opening up new doors, doing new things because we're curious. And curiosity keeps leading us down new paths. And we see that with Abraham. As we're going to look at this passage today, he's not looking backwards to Mesopotamia. He's not looking back to where he came from. He's looking forward um, as he prepares to bury his wife, Sarah. And so uh, when we think about that, Judy and I have kept moving forward for a lot of years. Over our 30 years of marriage, we lived all these different places from South Florida to Ohio to Missouri to Southern California and back to Pennsylvania. And, and so we've kept moving forward, but we're praising the Lord that we've settled down here for a long time, 12, going on 13 years. And we're looking forward uh, to remaining here, uh, I hope, until retirement. But um, since Judy and I moved a lot, we haven't really, uh, over our 30 years, we haven't really... Uh, thought much about or even talked about burial, um, when, where we want to be buried. So burial places. Most people don't like to talk about death to begin with, much less about burial sites. And we've discussed it a couple of times um, over the 30 years, but I'm not sure we really landed on anything or settled on anything. We haven't purchased any burial plots yet. We haven't even met with the funeral uh, home to discuss their services. Um, so we're like, ah, you know, we just haven't, we haven't done much about, about that. But I started thinking more about it after the Stewardship Lifestyle Seminar with the Life Institute and meeting with the lawyer to discuss our will and estate planning. It's like, well, maybe that's another thing we need to start thinking about and talking about so that our kids don't have to worry about that, right? Uh, most of us uh, have parents that uh, did a lot of that planning. They took care of that. They went to the funeral home. They ha have a burial plot and things like that. And <clears throat> so they've taken care of it. No, my family has done that. Uh, I think about, uh, I called my mom and dad this week because I couldn't remember the name of the two cemeteries here in Chambersburg where uh, uh, their families are buried, but Salem Cemetery in Chambersburg is where my dad's family is primarily buried. So I have an uncle that's, that's there, and uh, my grandma and pappy Johns are there. My grandma's side of her family, the Rife family, most of them are buried there, and my parents will be buried there as well. They have uh, two burial plots and then Browns Mill Presbyterian Cemetery in Chambersburg, it's right behind, right behind Rhodes Grove Camp and Conference Center. If you're familiar with Rhodes Grove, that, that, that cemetery is where my pappy and grandma hikes and a lot of my mom's side of the family are buried. And then the Kennedy side of that family is buried there as well. And so with Mabel Grove's funeral this week, I was reminded again that Judy and I don't have burial plots. But as we were out at uh, the cemetery at Barron's Salem Union Cemetery, um, you know, the, the family just kind of took me around and showed me some of the other headstones that are buried there. And so it was just a reminder again, like, oh, I don't have this settled yet. Most families have a particular cemetery where most of them have been buried or will be buried. And this is usually the case with most families. But I want you to understand that this is not a recent tradition in our lifetime or even the generation or generations before us. The idea of a family burial place comes to us from the patriarchs. 
That's a long time ago, right? Abraham was just as concerned about securing a family burial space, and I just felt relieved when I was studying this week that I'm in good company. Abraham didn't have this planned ahead of time. Sarah passed away, and he says, i got to find a place to bury my wife, right? He didn't have a burial plot ready to go. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. It wasn't until his wife Sarah's death that he secured the family burial plot. Abraham was fully committed to God's divine plan for him and his descendants. Once he entered the promised land, he didn't look back. He kept moving forward. As we'll see in Genesis chapter 23, verses 1 to 20 today, Abraham doesn't take Sarah back to Mesopotamia to bury her where her family was from. Rather, he purchased his property in Canaan, And what we'll learn from Abraham's example is our big idea today. Faith in God's divine word gives us strength and confidence to keep moving forward. So that's what we're going to be learning about today. And so as we uh, let that just kind of begin to work into our hearts and minds, would you just bow your heads with me as we commit the passage to the Lord in prayer? Lord, I just come to you today. I just want to be your mouthpiece. So Lord... I want your words to come out of my mouth. And so, Lord, if there's anything in my notes that is not from you, I pray that I wouldn't even speak those words today. And, Lord, if there's something that's not in my notes that you want to say to your people, would you put those words in my mouth? And, Lord, I pray that you would just move by your Holy Spirit in each heart and mind today, that you would do the work that you want to do. I pray that you would open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your message. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking at three points today. Death, deed, and done. So all D words. And um, as we think about death, let's look at the first two verses of chapter 23. This is what God's word says. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. So we see Sarah's age here, and um, I didn't really realize this until I was studying this week, but Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose age is revealed. We know at the age of 90 is when she gives birth to Isaac, and then 30, what, 37, how many... Yeah, 37 years later, uh, she passes away. And, uh, and so um, this is just a fun note. It's tongue-in-cheek this morning, so just you know, get ready to laugh. I want you to, to be in. He's ready. All right. So um, perhaps this is why we are never to ask a woman her age. God only revealed one woman's age in the Bible, so like we're never supposed to ask women their age, period, okay? It's kind of settled. I was joking around with Pastor Mark uh, this week, like, it's biblical, right? <laughs> no, I'm, that's a joke. I'm joking. Um, but, but anyhow, I wanted to have a little bit of fun with you this morning. We know that uh, she is 127 years old when she dies. And so Hamilton says, all that we know of Sarah's activities between the age of 90 and 127 is that she gave birth to Isaac and died 37 years later. Now, obviously, she's traveling around with Abraham, so whatever Abraham's doing, except for when he takes Isaac to, you know, sacrifice him, she's not along on that trip, but 
And it seems as though she's just following Abraham around. So whatever Abraham's doing, you know, Sarah's probably doing as well. But her name's just not mentioned or different information about her is not given uh, in these chapters. So it's three years before Isaac's marriage uh, to Rebekah. Um, so she doesn't get to see that. Abraham's 137 years old at this point, and they've, lived, uh, they've been and lived in Canaan for 62 years. As we're going to see, they've 62 years as aliens and strangers in the promised land that God has given to them. We see where she died. It's Kiriath Arba. This would have been uh, the name of the town when Abraham and Sarah lived there. And the narrator gives the audience the modern city name to help them know where he's talking about. He says it's in Hebron. So th- he said, this is the name of the town when you know, Abraham and Sarah were living. This is the name of the town now. Just giving that to you. Joshua does that in, uh, or in the book of Joshua, chapter 14, verse 15. We understand a little bit more about this, uh, this city. It says, Hebron used to be called Kiriath Arba, after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. So we understand where that original name came from, from this particular man named Arba. And so uh, Matthews in his commentary helps us understand what that uh, name means. Kiriath Arba means city of four, which may, be, uh, may originally have referred to a group of four related cities. And then he lists like Anir, Eshkol, Mamre, and Hebron. So perhaps that's why um, this city was named or that location was named Kiriath Arba because of those four cities. And then we know that it's in the land of Canaan. This is the promised land. But then we see Adam's grief here in the second part of this section. The passage makes it sound like Abraham was somewhere else when Sarah passed away. So he, if he wasn't in, in Hebron at the time, where was he? Well, let's jump back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 19, and we read these words. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. So this was just after Abraham and Isaac returned from the top of Mount Moriah, where the Lord had tested Abraham by asking him to sacrifice Isaac. We, we know that there was a, a substitute ram that was provided. And if you remember, it was a three-day journey from Beersheba to Mount Moriah, which is just outside of Jerusalem. It was about 50 to 60 miles. And Beersheba is 26.4 miles south of Hebron, It's almost halfway, Hebron's almost halfway between Beersheba and Jerusalem. So it would have been about a day and a half journey. Perhaps Sarah remained in a clan community in the grove of Mamre near Hebron while Abraham and Isaac helped with the flocks and the herds in Beersheba. Or maybe he was just down there checking out. Um, You know, his wealth was in a lot of these flocks and herds. And so maybe he was just down there checking it out with Isaac when Sarah passed away. Abraham had dug a well in Beersheba when he and Abimelech struck this contract, this agreement, and then it would have been a natural place for them to shepherd their flocks and herds since the well was there. So Abraham followed the grieving rites of the ancient Near East as he mourned and wept for Sarah. We see those two words, mourning and weeping. The mourning rites would have included loud weeping, tearing of clothes, sitting in the dirt, wearing sackcloth and shaving their head, as Matthew points out. He goes on and continues that mourning would have involved crying out, exclamations of grief that may be a ritual lament, although not the, the cries of a formal poetic lament. So it's not like what we see in Psalms. There's different uh, laments in the book of Psalms that are super poetic, you know, like David's writing these things. That's not what we're talking about. This is just from the heart. I mean, this is a heart that's broken, and they're just crying out. They're lamenting the loss of this loved one. 
It was not uncommon in biblical times for the surviving family members to mourn loudly. The neighbors would have known immediately that someone had died because of the loud laments of the family. And in some cases, there were professional mourners who would join the family in their grief. Now, our grief today is, seems much more subdued, doesn't it? We, just, we don't make a, a lot of loud laments. Though I've experienced family members who have wept openly and loudly. So there's certainly nothing wrong with expressing our grief openly and loudly. Sometimes we maybe just do that in the privacy of our home as we remember that loved one. Weeping was how a person would express their grief either over the death of a loved one or a difficult situation. It has the idea of just shedding tears. So Abraham's doing both of those things. He's lamenting out loud. He's wailing. Tears are coming down his face as he mourns the loss of Sarah. Warren Wearsby relates this encounter that he had with Dr. Uh, Vance Havner. He said the late Vance Havner had a wife named Sarah. Shortly after her untimely death, I was with Dr. Havner at the Moody Bible Institute, and I shared my condolences with him. I'm sorry to hear you lost your wife, I said to him when we met in the dining room. He smiled and replied, Son, when you know where something is, you haven't lost it. Isn't that a great reminder for us? Family members that have a personal relationship with Christ, when they pass on, they're not lost. We know right where they are, don't we? They're with Jesus. They're in heaven. And so I think this is just an incredible reminder. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Isn't that true? He writes to the Corinthian believers, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, we read these words. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit, of a deposit, the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad." Isn't that powerful? Isn't that a wonderful reminder? Boy, that's what we're groaning for, right? We're like, oh, Lord, can you come back today? <laughs> this is a tough day for me. Can you come back today? Because I want to be clothed in that heavenly body. I, I'm, I'm experiencing pain today, right? The, this physical body, it's just breaking down day after day. And Lord, I just can't wait to be in your presence. And we see Paul relating that. In Revelation, John, the apostle John writes these words. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Are you looking forward to that kind of rest? Boy, I am. It's, it's, life's just busy, right? 
we just don't slow down. We don't take time to rest in the Lord. You know, some people say, well, I'll rest when I'm underground. Well, in the presence of the Lord is where we'll be. What an incredible rest that will be. Looking forward to that. I don't know. Hope you are too. So when our loved ones who have a personal relationship with Jesus depart from this world, we can rejoice because they're not lost. They're with Jesus. And maybe that first next step on the back of your communication card is for you today. And that's to rejoice over my loved ones who have passed away and had a personal relationship with Jesus because they are with him now. What a blessed hope that we have. It's a hope that we have as disciples of Jesus Christ that we will one day be with him also. Paul writing to the Thessalonian believers in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, uh, he writes this. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we, will, uh, yeah, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. Whew, are, you right? are you ready for that? I am. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to greet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And I love this last part. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It's okay. Life's tough right now. I understand it. But just guess what? When, when Christ returns, we're not going to be left here. He's going to take the dead first. And then he's gonna, we're going to join him in the, in the clouds. How exciting. And we're supposed to encourage each other with those words. And so as soon as Abraham completes his mourning and weeping, he sets his sight on purchasing a burial location for Sarah. That's our second point today, is deed. It's verses 13 to 18. Uh, and we'll, I'm... It's, we're going to break it down. It's in the three different movements. This section, I said, is, like I said, is broken into three movements that all begin with the same Hebrew word, kum, which is um, translated rose, not as in the flower, but as, as in getting up um, or arise. In verses 3 and 7, arise after lying down from bending over the dead, and then it's translated in verses 17 and 20 as was deeded, and it can mean stand, especially figuratively, be established, confirmed of a purchase. And so let's look at the first movement then under this point of deed. The first movement we, saw, we see in verses 3 through 6. And if, you, if you're a person who uh, you know, writes in your Bible or circles certain things, I encourage you to do that with these three words. You're going to see it here in verse 3. Then Abraham rose, that's the Hebrew word, kum, from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. So we see this first movement. It includes the initial round of negotiations with the Hittites. And as I mentioned, Abraham rose, kum, he got up from beside Sarah's body after mourning and weeping, and then he has a request that he gives to the Hittites. He first explains to them, I'm an alien and I'm a stranger. He addresses the Hittites, who are the sons of Heth, and uh, Golden Gate, in the commentary 
they wrote, said, a resident alien is someone who does not belong by right in a place. A settler is someone who is nevertheless staying there semi-permanently. So when Abraham says, I'm an alien and a stranger, he says, I know they don't have any right to be here, but I've kind of been hanging around for 62 years. <laughs> Basically, say, hey, you know, I, I'm kind of like a permanent, um, a permanent part of this, or semi-permanent. Abraham had tenant status with them since he had been living among them for so many years. It's the idea of a settler. A stranger had some recognition in the community but, but could not own property of his own. And so Wearsby says this, the truth was that Abraham owned the whole land. God had given it to him, but there was no way that he could convince his neighbors of that. Isn't that interesting? Can you imagine going to your neighbor and saying, guess what? God has given me your house. How's that conversation going to go? Probably not so well, right? Unless God spoke to them too and said, hey, I've given your house to your neighbor, right? How would that go? What, Lord? Okay. I just think that conversation wouldn't go well. So that's why Abraham does what he does. And the way that he addresses the Hittites, instead he comes humbly before the Hittite people. And he asks them, he humbles himself before them and asks permission to buy a property in their land, which would give him a permanent foothold in Canaan. Abraham would no longer be an alien and a stranger, but rather a landowner and a permanent part of the community. From this little parcel of land, the descendants of Abraham would fill the whole land. This is God's plan. Abraham's moving forward, right? He's not looking back. Matthew says the man has no land of his own, but by acquiring Hittite property, he demonstrates his reliance on the prior promise of the Lord. Abraham's just constantly like, God, you made the promise. I trust you. I believe you. I'm not looking back. I'm not doubting. Nope, you said that I was, you know, my descendants are going to own this land. Well, here's the first purchase. This is what I want to do. And so that leads us to our first principle. <clears throat> God is pleased when we have faith in his divine promises. Same is true of us, right? Abraham believed God for the birth of, of Isaac and it was credited to him as righteousness as we see in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham had faith that God would establish his descendants in Canaan and therefore he asked to purchase land in Canaan to bury his dead. God always keeps his promises. He promises to never leave us or to forsake us. We see that in Hebrews 13, 5. But he also says in Matthew 28, 20, that he will be with us always till the very end of the age as we go and do the Great Commission. He promises to always love us. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn you. What is everlasting love? It's a love that never ends. He always loves us. He promises to forgive our sins when we confess and repent. I already mentioned this earlier, 1 John 1.9 if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we repent and recognize our sin, he says and promises that he'll forgive us. He promises to provide for us. Philipp, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 says that he'll supply all our needs according to his riches. In Matthew 6, he said that if we seek his kingdom and his righteousness first, that all these things will be added to you. And God, who did not spare his own son, will also graciously give us all things, as Paul writes to the Roman believers. And there's so many more promises of God found in his word. I just, I just chose a few today. So where do we need to exercise our faith in God's promises? 
That's the question we have for ourselves today. And that leads us to our second next step on the back of your communication card. It's to trust by faith that God will fulfill his divine promises in my life. And then we're just reminded of the big idea that faith in God's divine word gives us strength and confidence to keep moving forward. Abraham needed some land with a cave on it to bury his dead. And so we see the Hittites' response here. The Hittites recognized Abraham's status within their community. They called him a mighty prince. In the Hebrew, it means a prince with God, a prince of God. They see Abraham as God's elect one, as Hamilton points out. They recognize God's protection and provision for Abraham. He was given animals and slaves from Pharaoh and Abimelech. And Sarah received a thousand shekels of silver from Abimelech. Keep that in mind as we keep going through this passage. A thousand shekels of silver... Abraham had defeated the five kings that had attacked the region where Sodom and Gomorrah were located, and he returned all of the people to that region, including his nephew Lot and his family. Abraham had become very wealthy with silver, gold, and uh, flocks and herds. Abraham was well known throughout Canaan, and overall he had a good reputation with the people of Canaan. I say that because Abimelech wasn't really happy with him, right? Like, why did you lie to me about your, your wife being your sister? Well, it was just a half lie, right? That's a, that makes it a whole lie. <laughs> half truth is, is still a lie. <clears throat> and so he's like, maybe he didn't quite have a, re- a good reputation with Abimelech and, and, uh, and his court. But overall, he had a good reputation. And so the second principle is this. God is glorified when our lives testify about him. That was Abraham's life. They're like, you are a, a prince among us, a mighty prince, God's elect, They recognize God's provision and protection in his life. Do our lives testify about the Lord's protection and provision? Do our lives testify about how awesome God is? Do our lives show others the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I hope so. And that's the third next step today is to glorify God by living a life that testifies about him. We want others to know that there's something different. We don't want to look the same as the world. We don't want to act the same as the world. We don't want to talk the same as the world. We're to be set apart. We're to pursue holiness. We're to love one another. And because of Abraham's reputation in Canaan, the Hittites inform him that they can that he can have his pick of any of their tombs. The Hittites offer their choicest tombs to Abraham. They're willing to have Sarah buried in any of their tombs. This would have been a privilege, right? But here's an important note. The offer does not include land ownership, but simply space in their tombs. They didn't want to give up land to an alien and a stranger. There was normally a preparation table in each tomb where the bodies were prepared for burial. It was kind of in the center. And then there were other chambers that were carved into the walls of the cave where the most recently deceased person would be laid. And then eventually the remaining bones were piled up in the back of the tomb. He just became a part of everybody else (laughs) in the back. And so we see why the Hittites were amiable in offering their tombs to Abraham. Because they're like, well, this is just temporary. And and once Abraham moves on, he'll just come and pick up Sarah's bones and and take them with them. And yet, as we end this first movement with the offer of any tomb, Abraham has a specific cave in mind. We see that in verses 7 to 16. This is the second part, uh, second movement in the second point today. Look at those verses with me if you would. And again, if you want to circle rows, it's the third word in in the NIV. Um, 
And that's the second reference to it. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He, he said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and then intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. <clears throat> I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Abraham, again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me. If you will, I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, listen to me. You hear that again? He keeps hearing saying that. Listen to me. My Lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. And so what we have here in this uh, second movement, it includes two additional rounds of speeches. The first round is addressed to the people of the land, but also includes the specific piece of land that Abraham's uh, desiring from Ephron. And again, we see Abraham rose, and that's the Hebrew word kum. He got up from sitting in the city gate, and he continues to be respectful and humble as he makes a specific request. He stands up only to bow down before the Hittite people in respect. And then he asks them this. He's still, feel, still feeling out the situation with the Hittites when he says, if you're willing to let me bury my dead. He asks the Hittite leaders to intercede on his behalf with Ephron, son of Zohar. Ephron owns a field that has a cave at the end of it. The cave is named Machpelah. And the name actually means double cave or split cave or double doored. And so perhaps there, was there were two chambers in this cave, either side by side or one on top of the other. Or maybe there were two entrances to the cave. We don't really know. Um, but that's what this uh, cave was named. And Abraham's only interested in the cave at the end of the field, and he's willing to pay the fair market value for it. And we see Ephron's response. He's sitting among the Hittites that were gathered. At the end of verse 10, uh, the city is identified as his city, so perhaps he was the main leader of that city where he lived. We're not really told. Ephron offers both the field and the cave that's on it to Abraham as a gift. Now, we have to understand that this was part of the typical bargaining process in the ancient Near East. Ephron was not really giving or offering his field and his cave for free. This was just the first starting point. He, so basically what he's saying is, I'm willing to sell this to you. But he says, no, my Lord, you can have the field and the cave for free. Now, the footnote in the NIV Life Application Bible says this, if Abraham had accepted the land as a gift when it was offered, he would have insulted Ephron, who then would have rescinded his offer. Many Middle Eastern shopkeepers still follow this ritual with their customers. I've never been to the Middle East, but um, you know, it sounds like you can haggle with them, and you would offend them if they offered you know, a scarf or something to you or something out of olive wood uh, there from the Holy Land, and you'd be like, well, thank you, that's it. And they'd be like, oh, no, no, get that back here, nope. I didn't mean for free. That's just the start. I'm letting you know that I'm offering it to you, but now we need to haggle on the price. And so had Abraham accepted the free offer, there's another thing that could have happened. Ephron's family could potentially come back after his death and reclaim the field in the cave. There wouldn't have been any, 
there wouldn't have been any official contract that was taking place. There wasn't exchanging of, of uh, you know, money or possessions in order to uh, make this official. And so Ephron's family could have come back and just simply said, Abraham, it's ours. You need to, you need to take Sarah's bones out. So Abraham understood the bargaining ritual, so he continues his dialogue with Ephron. The second round addresses Ephron directly in the payment for the field in the cave. That's verses 12 to 16. Abraham once again bows before the people of the land in respect. He offers to buy the field that the cave sits on. And Ephron continues the bargaining process by stating that the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. Now this seems like an exorbitant price for the field, especially based on other land transactions found in Scripture. Hamilton uh, identifies what some of those are. David paid only one-eighth that amount, 50 shekels of silver for the purchase of the temple site from Arunah in 2 Samuel 24, 24. Jeremiah paid 17 shekels of silver for his cousin's field in Anathoth in Jeremiah 32, 9. And then this, I think this was just a bigger piece of property, but Omri paid 15 times as much as Abraham, two talents of silver, 6,000 shekels for the large hill of Samaria. And so Ephron didn't consider the price exorbitant because he states, but what's that between me and you? <laughs> I think he just knew how wealthy Abraham was, right? He's like, this dude's a prince. He's got all kinds of gold and silver. He's got all kinds of animals. And so he probably knew Abraham's wealth. But also, again, from the footnote in the Life Application Bible, it says, the custom of the day was to ask double the fair market value of the land, fully expecting the buyer to offer half the stated price. So, you know, Ephron's like, okay, well, it's 400. It's worth 400. And he's like just waiting. Because he's like, okay, if he offers 200, we're good. And Abraham goes, okay. Right? And Ephron's like, what? Wait a minute. You're, you're not doing this right. <laughs> you're not doing this bargaining thing this is the right way. Abraham agrees to the price without haggling, and he weighs out 400 shekels of silver according to the weight current among the merchants. Now, if they had hung on to uh, that 1,000 shekels of silver they got from Avimelech, they had plenty of, of shekels. To, you know, this is only 400. It's not even half. And the transaction was done in the presence of the people of the land so that there was plenty of witnesses. With the purchase complete, the final movement uh, summarizes everything that just happened. We see that in verses 17 and 18. Um, this is what it says. So Ephron's field and Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. And so the property and the location is identified. It's uh, the field, the cave, and the trees within the borders of the field. It's in Mach, or the name of it is Machpelah near Mamre. The people involved are identified here. It says Ephron and Abraham. This is the third time that the, the word kum is used. Here it's uh, translated as was deeded or made sure, established, secured. And I like what Wolke says in his commentary. Literally, the phrase is rose and went to and went over to. That is the deed rose and went to Abraham. So that's how that third use of uh, the word kum is, could be used here. So that deed rose and went to Abraham. And there were plenty of witnesses, all the Hittites that had come to the gate of the city. Then the transaction uh, complete Abraham can finally bury Sarah. This is the third point this morning, and it's and third point's done, and it's verses 19 and 20. 
Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. And so I'm sure that Abraham didn't waste time in completing the burial process. The location of the cave is mentioned again. The transfer of ownership is mentioned one last time. And so as we just think about this passage of Scripture for us today, just a, a review of some of the things that we talked about, you don't have to weep like those who have no hope. When your family members who have a personal relationship with Jesus pass away, you can rejoice because they are with Jesus. They're not lost. We can be reminded that God keeps his promises He'll never leave us or forsake us. He'll always love you and forgive you when you repent. He will always provide for you and so much more. So you can trust by faith that God will fulfill his divine promises in your life. And then glorifying God with your life is an incredible way to testify about him to others. As a body of believers, we can rejoice with friends who have believing family that have passed away because we know where they are at. But we can also mourn with them as they grieve. We can encourage each other with the promises of God found in Scripture, and we can urge each other on in living lives that glorify God. As we close this morning, just this illustration from Warren Wearsby's commentary. He's talking about somebody that, a missionary, that had to keep moving forward after a very difficult time says this, in November of 1858, missionary John Patton landed in the New Hebrides to establish a ministry among the people. On February 12, 1859, his wife gave birth to a son, and on March 3rd, his wife died. Seventeen days later, the baby died. But for, this, these are Patton's words. But for Jesus and the fellowship he gave me there, I must have gone mad and died beside that lonely grave. It's like he knew that Jesus was with him in the midst of this mourning that was going on. Wearsby continues and says, But we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and we are looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, John Patton could have just hung it up right there. He could have said, I'm done. I'm going back to where I came from. But he hung in there. He hung in there. He kept moving forward in the midst of some very difficult times. And so we can do the same. Uh, and we have confidence because of God's divine words that we can keep moving forward. And so as the worship team comes to lead us in the closing song, would you just bow your heads with me as we commit this passage to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that we saw today that you are always with us. You'll never leave us or forsake us, Lord God. All these different problems you'll provide for us. You, you love us. Lord, we uh, are so grateful for that. I pray that our lives would glorify you today and each day as we come in contact with those around us. Now, Lord, I pray that you would inhabit the praise of your people as we continue to worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.